Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. It is so good to see you all here on a very cold day. You uh, braved the uh, snow drifts. There were a couple of dangerous ones out there, but uh, thankfully you're all here safe and sound. Genesis 14, today is the Lord's day. We are the Lord's people, which is why we've gathered in his name here together. And uh, let me also welcome our guests. Wonderful to have you here. And for those watching online, we love you. Hope you're well. And uh, we'll dive in here in just a moment. That's Genesis 14. Might want to keep that open. Have you heard of the Gurkhas? This bit of history fascinated me when I heard it. In the early 1800s, the British East India Company was colonizing India. That's an interesting thought, a company. We think we may live in a a, a dystopia of businesses, big businesses these days. But at that time, a, a British company had an army and was colonizing India. And they were doing so especially for the sake of trade. According to the story, they made swift progress through the country, basically overran India. And when they came to Nepal, they thought they would have the same experience, that it would be a quick run through that country as well, maybe even easier than India. However, they ran into the Nepali fighting force known as the Gurkhas, the Gurkha soldiers. And even though they thought this would be an easy assignment, they were unprepared for the fierce resistance that the Gurkhas put up. And the British ended up suffering heavy losses. They were so impressed with the Gurkha warriors, they sought out a treaty with them. They wanted the Gurkha to fight for them. And they did obtain that treaty in about uh, 1815. And that treaty is in effect to this very day. The Gurkhas fight Uh, for the UK to this very day. And today we're going to read, really, the only story that presents Father Abraham as a chieftain warrior. It's pretty interesting. This is the story that presents him as a warrior. We're going to learn something about the size and the strength of his household. And maybe it shouldn't surprise us, but we're going to see that Abram had trained soldiers in his own household. And it, it was probably a rather common practice at that time that if, you're, if your clan grew to a certain uh, point, to a certain size, you needed your own security force. You had to have your own fighters, your own army. And our story today from Genesis 14 begins with an outside invading force. It's a story of nations raging, as per usual. But this invading force is formidable. And in fact, they seem unstoppable, like a monster. They terrorize what we think of as the land of Canaan. They easily churn through Abram's larger and more urban neighbors, and they scatter their kings to the hillside. And in that way, they're like the Brits tearing through India. But there are no Gurkhas to stop them in this story. But in this story, there's something better. 
And that's what we're going to read about. So let's break our text down into three points. First, Abram is righteous in relationship. Abram is righteous in relationship. I'm going to read this text for you. It's Genesis 14, 1 through 16. This is the largest portion that we'll read at a time today. So hang in there. There's a lot of names and whatnot. But it's interesting. And every one of these uh, sort of nuances is actually worthy of study, which of course we won't do all that today. But it's fascinating material here. So Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 16. In the days of Amphrel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Alasar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedolaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedolaomer and the kings who were with them came and defeated the Raphaim in Asheroth Kanarm, the Zuzim in Ham, the Yemim in Shavakiriatham, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedalamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Alasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the, king, as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And so what we have here are kings from the east represented primarily by Kedorlaomer forcefully ruling over kings in the west, specifically four kings from the east ruling over these five kings in the west. And they're represented, the five kings in the west are represented primarily by the king of Sodom. And these names of the kings are rather interesting. They point to lots of nuance and meaning. I picked up a few of these notes uh, that we just might want to be mindful of as we go through this. One is simply the sheer number of kings mentioned in the passage. We have nine listed here, four against five, but we also have Abram, Mamre, and his brothers, Eshcol, and Aner. They're Amorites, by the way. 
And these were all great men in their own right. They each have a city or a region named after them. One might even consider them kings. Furthermore, furthermore, Melchizedek is a king. And of course, most importantly, the Lord is God most high. He's the king over all, the king of kings. That's a lot of kings. But this is clearly a why do the nations rage moment. Because he who sits in heaven laughs. And also, we'll get to the king of Sodom more in a bit. But I wanted to point out here that when the names of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are listed in verse 2, these may be actually more tongue-in-cheek titles than their actual names. And, and kings at the time would have more than one name. They would have titles, <clears throat> and these would be used at different times. These names that are given play on the sound of the Hebrew words for evil and wicked. Verse 2 sort of reads, these kings made war with evil, the king of Sodom, and wicked, the king of Gomorrah. And that's some serious foreshadowing going on right here in the passage. We're supposed to kind of pick up on that as readers, and we do well to recognize that all-out sanctioned immorality is one of the greatest blights on a people that is possible. Immorality really is no joke. It's really no joke. It is a rejection of the God-designed goodness of the body and of husband and wife. Immorality is gross rebellion against God. Let us never think otherwise. I think this is important for us to recognize that immorality is one of the great sins of the old covenant. You see it in the Old Testament. It, it, it comes through there. And when it reaches a certain point, it is so great against God that God takes action against it. So every human, there's temptation, there's great struggle, it's extremely common, right? But there are degrees of it, and as it grows, it becomes a stench against God. And so the, the, the men of Sodom were considered, as, we're, as we read last week, they were considered great sinners. And it was violence mixed in there too, and... and Immorality and violence go together. We see that emerging in our own society more and more. We as a church should be very clear about this. Immorality, as it grows, is insatiable and destroys everything in its path. So we do well to come out from it, to repent of it, and to remain far from it. Let us not be stained with immorality. I should, one last note on that, just want to mention, obviously immorality is a, is a topic for a huge amount of joking today. And there are things that are funny about the human body and the way we relate, right? But there's a line. Not everything is funny. Some things are just wicked. And so even, because I, I think the reason I bring this up is because I think many times the, the way that we end up viewing immorality is it's, it's been informed by humor. And as God's people, we should be sensitive to that too. So let us never think otherwise. Immorality is gross rebellion against God. And, I, and we need to be especially mindful of this as a church that is immersed in a world that has gone 
sexually insane. Now, final note on the names of these kings is that they indicate the geography to some degree of the invading force. The invading forces from the east. The, the regions indicated here are the regions of Babylon and Assyria and Persia. So modern day, by the way, modern day Iraq, Iran, and somewhat Turkey. And, and so these nations are coming from that area, and the way that they come into uh, the east, the land of Israel is they come in uh, through the north uh, above the Sea of Galilee and then they travel south down towards Sodom, down toward Jerusalem, down toward where Abram and Lot live. Well, these, these powers are going to, for, for centuries and thousands of years to come, they're going to be part of the landscape and, and the background for Israel, Babylon and Persia and, and Assyria. That's all happening even at this time. These powers from the east are coming into the west and oppressing the western powers, which the west meaning the land of Palestine, the region of Palestine, or the land of Canaan. Verse 5 tells us that the first people group, that these kings from the east, when they come in, they're upset because uh, their vassals have overthrown them. They said, or rather, they haven't over overthrown them. They've rebelled against them. They said, we're not going to pay you tribute anymore. And so they say, okay, they take a year to gather their strength, and they come, they come from the east, they come into the west, and when they get to the west, the first people they beat up on and defeat are called the Rephaim. And this is significant because the Rephaim are known to be giants. And this is meant to say something to the reader to consider, look how powerful a force has come from the east and to the west. This is not a small raiding band. This is massive international geopolitical strife and conflict. This is war. This is a world war in a sense. It's regional. But it's a massive portion of the region. And, and this force from the east under Ketoleomer, they have victory all the way down to, to Sodom and the region there. And they, they come all the way down. They still have the strength to deal with the five kings, the five rebellious kings led by the king of Sodom. And they summarily dispatch that sad group. The defeat is so thorough, thorough that the battle isn't even described. You, you read that portion of the battle, it goes directly to the bitumen uh, 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 pits, the tar pits, the, the condition of the battlefield. And frankly, this should be home turf advantage for, for Sodom and the kings with him. This is near them. They should know this. In fact, they may have gone there to set a trap. They may have been trying to use the pits to their advantage, but the pits worked against them. Even the battlefield seems to be against Sodom and the kings with the king of Sodom. They're falling into their own tar pits. They're stuck and destroyed by nature. And then they end up scattering and hiding in the hills. That's the scene. But Keter Laomer made one mistake. He made one mistake. He wanted to peddle in human trafficking. He wanted to be in the slave trade. And so he took slaves, and it's against the righteousness of God to sell flesh, to kidnap people, and to sell them. 
That's what makes the entire history of slavery and its entire worldwide history so wicked. And Kedileomer wants to deal in that. Had he just dealt with the possessions, the materials, he might have been fine, but he took people, and guess what? One of the people he kidnapped was the nephew of Abram. Look at Abram's righteous response. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. You see, it wasn't the possessions that spurred Abram to action. Notice that here. It was that his relative had been kidnapped. And this would include Lot's whole family, too. And, and you know, maybe his children, maybe, well, yeah, his children. Um, I don't know that he had grandchildren at the time, but his household. So Abram's response is without hesitation. He hears it. You, you get the sense that he hears this. He jumps up. And he starts making his plans and gathering everybody. Get, get these guys ready. Get the trained men. Get the supplies. Saddle up. Get the camels. Let's get going. Calls for his allies. Says, let's go. There's no doubt in him. There's no second thoughts. There's no concern for his own safety. It's simply, this is what I must do. What a reaction. He must have certain principles. Certain values already set in place at the convictional level in order to respond so quickly like that, so decisively, so fearlessly, ready to take whatever risk to go and rescue Lot. Think about that response. Think about that reaction. What were those convictions? It was righteousness. It was relational righteousness. Can we see how clear that conviction is? Where does that kind of conviction come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from, this is my family. I must do this. I'm the one that protects Lot. I will rescue him. I am going now. And even if it costs me everything, this is what I must do. This is the gauntlet thrown down. This is the line crossed. This is the hill to die on. And he knows it. It's clear to him. And he steps into it decisively. Now make no mistake, it would have been easy for Abram to rationalize his responsibility, his relational responsibility away. It wasn't his fault that Lot chose to move towards Sodom, away from the presence of God, away from the blessing of God in Abram. That wasn't his fault. He might have thought it serves him right for moving away from the promised land from moving away from the blessing of God in me. But Abram would not let Lot suffer this face, this fate, because he was his kinsman. Can we see the power of righteousness here? The noble Abram, guided by his faith in the Lord, understanding his responsibility, and being guided by that, stepping into it with strength and courage, faith and righteousness. When we live in righteousness, can we see the power of righteousness? When we live in it, it directs us, it, it guides us, it informs us, it puts us on the right path, even if that path is somewhat risky at times. It brings the clarity we need. It comes out of us. Brothers and sisters, we really need righteousness to guide us today. We need to know God. 
and have at the convictional level the things that please him, that are right in his eyes. We really don't have room to to leave this to the side. We're to grow in righteousness so we know the path to take. And there there are patriarchs in this room. Father Abraham is one of the great patriarchs in the history of redemption. And in him, he's an example for us. We need that as patriarchs ourselves. There are heads of homes, heads of families in this room, right? This is part of the strength of the church. The patriarchs of the church, the patriarchs in the church, the heads of households, the heads of homes. And God gives us, obviously, wives and children, and he puts others in the orbit of our household. God gives us responsibility for them. He puts that on our shoulders. He entrusts the responsibility to us. The cultural narrative and the bestial forces in the world seek to separate husbands and fathers from their God-given responsibility responsibilities to be the patriarchs of their homes. The world's constantly working on that, right? Maybe you feel the same way that I do about the controlling narratives that we hear about toxic masculinity and the tyrannical patriarchy. How did we ever let good terms and good things be called evil. We can't allow that cultural narrative to separate us from what we're called to as the patriarchs of our homes. Do not let that happen. Instead, step into the relational righteousness of bearing the responsibility that God has given you and the Lord will bless it. Let me, let me just ask for, for you to think through and answer. Husbands, dads, do you see yourself as the head of the home? Do you see yourself as the head of the home? And, and then what does that mean to you? Being the head of the home doesn't mean I get my way all the time and I get all the perks. That's not what it means to be the head of the home. What it means to be the head of the home is to bear the weight for the spiritual condition of that home. And other things too, obviously, right? Provisions in it and things like finances and and for that matter, just uh, a civil engagement. All manner of things, but specifically spiritual health. We bear responsibility for the spiritual situation in our homes. And we could go on in application I think you understand. Do we see ourselves as the patriarch? And do we see ourselves, do we understand what that means to bear the weight of the responsibility, knowing that God will give us grace for it? And that whole blessed as we step into it. And to not be afraid. But to bless our families with our sacrifice for their spiritual benefit. That's what we're called to do. Now we've seen that Abram is righteous in relationship. He's got a relationship with Lot that calls him to this protective duty and he jumps up and he does it. Now we're going to see that Abram is righteous in worship as well. 
So here's the text, Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. Abram is righteous in worship. After his return from the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley, him there is Abram, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now apparently news of Abram's stunning and, and entire, complete, uh, victory, courageous victory, and, and somehow the news of that got out across the region. And this must have been great news to all those people that were defeated by these kings up from the east as they came south through the north of the land down to the area of Sodom. For Abram to catch them and defeat them and to bring everything back must have resonated throughout the country and brought comfort and joy to everyone. Abram's already blessing the peoples of the earth. He's already being a blessing to those around him, even to the king of Sodom. And so that, the news of that victory, that stunning victory gets out and somehow the arrangements were made for the coalition of kings, the kings of the west to meet in the valley of the kings. The king's valley was close by to the city of Salem. Salem would later become the city of Jerusalem. And Abram's victory would have been massive front page headline news throughout the entire region. And so when the king of Salem, whose name is Melchizedek, learns of the meeting, he decides to go out and he wants to bless Abram. Obviously, there were thousands of people meeting there in the King's Valley, but the text focuses on three, right? There's the hundreds of men that were with Abram plus uh, his allies, and so we don't know how large that force was that he goes out with. Um, it it might have been thousands that he goes out with, or maybe a thousand, something like that. But plus there's all the people they brought back. Plus there's all the people that come with all the kings to meet in the Valley of the Kings. And so there's thousands of people there. The text focuses on three. Abram and the two kings, Melchizedek, king of Salem, and the king of Sodom. And because it focuses on those three, we know that there's meant to be a contrast made here between the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom, and how they relate to Abram. And so we're going to see a little contrast there, or rather a lot contrast there. In verse 17, you can see that the king of Sodom goes out to meet Abram. He goes out to meet him. But Melchizedek, in the next verse, verse 18, the scripture says, brought out. He, Melchizedek, brought out. So the one goes empty-handed. The other brings. And he brings out refreshment for Abram, who's coming back from this great victory, but must be exhausted. Now, we're going to see another contrast in the next point, but these are two, two very different kings with very different values and very different commitments. And that's what we're supposed to see here. 
The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Zedek is a royal name. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness. And Salem means peace. And Melchizedek is the king of Salem. So his name means king of righteousness, and his position means king of peace. So he is the king of righteousness and of peace. And he also happens to be the king of the city that will become Jerusalem, where God will put his presence and temple. And so there's a lot of foreshadowing going on right here. We're told in verse 18 that Melchizedek is the priest. He's not only the king of righteousness and peace, but he's also the priest of God most high. And that phrase actually is repeated four times in our entire text. Three in what I just read and one coming in the next point. God most high. And that's an interesting phrase because this isn't just um, the praise of a God, not just Melchizedek is the priest of a God, and not just Melchizedek is the priest of the highest God like Zeus would be in the Greek pantheon. But this is God most high, said in a specific way if with phrasing. And I, I think this is monotheistic type of language. In other words, he is God. We may acknowledge others as sort of like gods, but there's only one God. He's God most high. He's God over all. And you're going to see in what he says next that it really appears that that Melchizedek believes that this is the only one true God, and he's the one I worship and I mediate for to others. This is, there is no other God but God type of language, and this man, Melchizedek, is his servant. Hebrews 7 teaches us a lot about Melchizedek. It sheds light on this passage. And in Hebrews 7, it teaches us that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, in that Melchizedek sort of comes out of nowhere, and he has no ending, right? There's no genealogy that talks about him. Well, he's not mentioned anywhere else. He just appears on the scene. And then he goes away as quickly as he comes and he disappears into a sort of a mystery. There's no ending for Melchizedek that we're told of. And in this way, not that he's a God himself, not that he's an angel or an immortal of some type, but in this way, one could say he's priest of God forever because we're not told of his beginning and we're not told of his ending. Similarly, Jesus also is a priest of the order of Melchizedek with no beginning and no ending. He's not ordained by earthly lineage, but by God himself. If someone wants to come to God, you go talk to Jesus. Because he is a priest forever in the lineage of Melchizedek. And so at the time, this Melchizedek is a great man and he prefigures the Savior King to come, the, the Son of God incarnate. He prefigures Christ. In our text, he mediates between God and Abram. He's, he's brought Abram bread and wine, which, by the way, is an extravagant refreshment brought over miles in those conditions, but an extravagant refreshment that's suitable to celebration. Not just water and bread, but bread and wine. And more importantly, he brings with him a blessing. 
let's look at that blessing up on the screen. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Notice here the first descriptor of God most high. So what does it mean that he's God most high? Well, it means that he's the possessor of heaven and earth. That's a critical point for us to understand as creatures. We often acknowledge that God is the creator, but we may not acknowledge what it means that he's creator. What it means that he's creator is that we belong to him. We're owned by God. I know that independent streak inside of us wants to say, no one owns me. But God owns us. We fully belong to him. This is true of every creature that he's ever made. It's, it's all owned by him. And that goes for you and me. And now this is an incredible honor that we've been given, to be made in his image as his creatures, to be given uh, a volition and will, agency, choice, glorious. But it's still all under his sovereignty because he possesses heaven and earth and he does what he will with his possessions This is all the more reason to bow humbly before him and worship him. It's not, when we come to understand that, really there's no other logical way to conclude other than that we belong to God and everything belongs to God. We're possessed by him. The response to that is not to to shake a rebellious fist and say, no, I'll go my own way. That's silliness. It's it's nonsense. It's the two-year-old shaking the fist at the father who says, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you. We have no power. But what ought to happen in us is we understand that God possesses us. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. We should fall and worship in humility, submitting to him in every way and bringing every bit of worship that we can muster to him. That is the response of a creature of God. So there's the first descriptor of God most high. God in his sovereignty is the possessor of heaven and earth. But look now at the second descriptor of God most high. It says again, and blessed be God most high. This time it's going to talk about an action. And this action is going to teach us about God. What is the action? Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. What's Melchizedek saying? He's saying God owns you and God has given you victory. God has delivered you. God has saved you and God has given you the strength to overcome your enemies. We can see here that God Most High is both sovereign and Savior. So he has always been So he is now. He is the Savior and the King. This is what the Lord is for us. And so we look and we see how will Abram respond. Have you ever heard anyone say something like, well, why are you thanking God? I'm the one who did it. I feel like I've seen that from time to time. 
you know, with, with someone who, you know, we're, let's thank God for the meal. Let's thank God for the meal. Why would you thank him? I'm the one who bought it. I'm the one who prepared it. I'm the one who, who put it on the table. I think sometimes we probably wouldn't say that, but sometimes we can kind of have that attitude. If anyone could have said that, Abram could have been up there on the list, right? Like, yeah, okay, I'll do my homage to the deity, but the truth is I'm the one who took the risk and I'm the one who traveled the miles and I'm the one who prepared all these men and I'm the one who's been training them for all these years and I'm the one who had this victory and I'm the one who brought it back. But as you know, that's not what Abram says and that's not what Abram does. Instead, verse 20 says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now that tenth certainly includes all of the bounty that Abram would have gotten, the spoils of war that he would have gotten from the kings of the east. And maybe it would have included some of the spoils that were taken by the kings of the east from these other uh, people groups that they conquered. But I am wondering, it doesn't tell us, and I don't know, and I couldn't find information on it, but I am wondering if this includes part of the tent that he gave included the spoils of what the kings of the east took from the king of Sodom. Wouldn't that be interesting that before Abram gives it back to the king of Sodom, he takes a tenth of it and gives it to God, gives it to Melchizedek in worship to God. And if it did, it might explain what happens next, what the king of Sodom is going to say to Abram in our next portion. But it certainly would have burned up the king of Sodom to have his things given away. It's an interesting thought. It's that idea that God owns it all. And the people that hold on to the material goods right now, they just hold it temporarily. It all belongs to him. But notice this. Abram wanted to give to God in response. And he wanted to give something tangible, something that would cost him. Abram gave it to the priest as unto the Lord himself. This is not a big message about tithing. Uh, we, we do talk about tithing, and, and tithing is where Christian giving begins. But it's worth pausing to notice here the heart of giving a tenth to the Lord. Notice the heart of it. Abram's probably exhausted. He's exuberant. This victory is amazing. But he's probably exhausted. He's got now to deal with the king of Sodom. He's probably got some negotiating that he's not really looking forward to. But the thing that seems to be on his mind the most is taking part of what God gave to him and giving it right back to say, thank you, God. I know, I know that my success, my deliverance, my victory came because of you. I know it. See, it's about what's going on inside us. The, the tithe is way more about what's going on inside us. It's way more about worship. 
than it is about the church paying its bills. It's about how we view God's provision. And it's worth asking ourselves how we say thanks to the Lord. How do we say thanks to the Lord? When you see something wonderful in your life, when it's something unexpected and something miraculous and something glorious, do you pause and pray and give thanks to the Lord? Are there times when you count your blessings? It's one of the reasons I love to pray at mealtime, and I encourage everyone to do so, because if we have food in front of us, isn't it because God gave it to us? And so it's just a great moment. Yeah, three times a day. But what if you're eating five five little meals a day? Do it five times a day. What if you're only eating one meal a day? Well, certainly do it on the one meal a day. You're doing that intermittent fasting thing. You're only doing one meal a day. Thank the Lord. What if it's just a protein shake? Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Because it's worship, isn't it? To pause and say, this is from you, from your hand. We praise you. We thank you. And so let me ask you, when something bad happens to you, do you curse inside? Do you yell at God and complain? There's a right time to bring our complaints to the Lord as the Psalms show us so that God can change our hearts into praise. Not so that we can stay there. And when we complain inside and certainly when we curse, there are better responses and there's even time to repent for those responses. But I ask you that because it's a natural reaction, right? We, something happens and we, we find ourselves angry. And I think if we look and we look closely at the bottom of it, a lot of times we're angry with God. We're saying, God, you could have prevented this. Why didn't you? But how about this side of that reaction? When something good happens to us, Do we pause? Do we thank him? Do we worship? It's part of what makes us different from the world is that we pause and we worship just as we've gathered here today to do. It may seem small, but it's not. And we're learning every day that our being, our very being is given to us for one purpose, for the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the Son. That's why we live and breathe. It's why we move and have our being. It's for his glory. Well, we've seen that Abram is righteous in relationship. We've seen that he's righteous in worship. And now we're going to consider that he's righteous in discretion. I use this term discretion. I mean it as moderation or good judgment. We must keep honing discretion Christian discretion, the discretion of righteousness, we must keep honing it in this age as we encourage one another to do, as I encouraged us to do earlier about the patriarchy and how good it is, about sexual immorality and how we must turn from it and repent of it. 
Well, this is truly critical, and we should let God's Word do the honing in us, and we should let Abram's work do the honing in us and teach us what righteousness is, what righteousness is at the heart level, and how it works out in our thinking, and how it works out in the way that we interpret the world around us, what is glorious, what is righteous, and what is wrong. Now, let me read the last portion of our text to you this morning. It's Genesis chapter 14, verses 21 to 24. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre, the Amorites, let them take their share. Now remember that Melchizedek came out of the gate and blessed Abram and God. But here's another contrast between the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. The king of Sodom doesn't come out blessing Abram and God. The king of Sodom comes out negotiating. He's negotiating. And while it looks like maybe he's just saying thanks by saying, okay, take the goods, the truth is Abram had control over all those things, the people and the goods. Abram could have said, "Uh uh-uh, they're all mine. Finders keepers. I win them, I keep them. You lose them, you serve me. You used to pay the kings of the east, now you pay me. You see, Abram could have done that. That would have been very common in that time. But that's not Abram's response, even though the king of Sodom is negotiating for his own skin and trying to save his neck, trying to keep his kingdom. Abram's response is nothing short of a a verbal slap in the face. It's a significant rebuff. Is it not? He tells him off. He doesn't do it by name calling. But it's insulting what he says to the king of Sodom. And that's quite telling, isn't it? Because this is a powerful expression of righteousness, of discretion, and discernment. Abram is learning to trust the Lord through his life, and he's putting integrity over wealth again. And that is often the question, isn't it? Putting integrity over wealth. Because I think for most people that have any access to wealth at any point in their life, there is the potential to waffle on integrity to gain more wealth, right? Now, please don't misunderstand I'm not interested in unnecessary rigors for the sake of looking spiritual uh, so that people will be impressed. That's not the goal. Anyone can do that. The Pharisees did that. But there is a line of integrity where there are certain things we cannot do for wealth. Now remember that the Sodomites are known as great sinners before the Lord. 
for the very reason of their immorality, the, uh, the unrestrained, celebrated immorality of their city and their region. Their immorality and the violence that accompanied it were notorious. This is not someone that Abram can partner with. It's not someone he can go into business with. It's not someone he can, in good faith, negotiate with no matter the wealth. Do we see that? He can't negotiate with them because of the great wickedness of the person he's interacting with. Now notice Abram's logic because he's thinking at a second level here. He's not shallow in his thought process. He's deep. He's thoughtful in his thought process. He thinks to the next level. He says to himself, he doesn't just say to himself, well, if I take this, I'll have more wealth. And if I don't take this, I'll have less wealth. Right? That's first level thinking. He says, what happens if I take this wealth from this king? He says, oh, if I take this wealth from this king, people will say that this wicked king made Abram wealthy. They'll view us as partners. They'll view me as a vassal of this king of Sodom. They'll view me as some ways subservient to him, some ways partnered with him. They'll view me in cahoots. They'll view me as like him. And that's not worth it. I can't go there. I can't do that. Why? Because the sin of Sodom is too great. You see? This is the second level thinking of a righteous mind and a righteous heart. It's why we can't celebrate the marriage between two men or two women. It's why we can't even pretend to celebrate it. It's, it's why our, our line in that moment should be something like Abram. Like, that's not a marriage. I'm, I know you're offended, but it's not a marriage. Sorry. Or when someone's demanding that you use pronouns to call a male a female or a female a male. I'm sorry, you're not that gender. This is the sex God gave you. I'm sorry, you don't like it. I know it's offensive. I know you interpret this as violence against yourself, but it's actually love. It's righteousness. It's truth. I can't bake that cake for your homosexual celebration. I can't. I can't do it. And sometimes this is where we get into trouble as a church because we can easily assume that Christians who have had to take that stand are, are only in trouble because they were obnoxious about it. And that's the easy way out. We're way beyond that. The world is pushing it wants the fight. It's coming after the people of God. The dragon that Revelation tells us about is the serpent and his beast. 
And the way that Satan uses the government to oppress God's people is very much in effect in 2024. And so it's time to draw those lines, to be clear, like Abram. I don't want anyone to be able to say that I got a red scent from you, not the strap of a sandal, not the thread of a robe. I know that's offensive. What we need to understand in this moment is when Abram does this, when he confronts the king of Sodom in such a manner, he gives the king of Sodom the best opportunity, the clearest moment to repent and to turn away from sin and to throw himself down on the mercy of God that he's ever had. Here's a man who's willing to stand and say, oh no, oh no, no. And draw that line. So Abram vows before the Lord, God most high, he will not take the smallest thing from the hand of the king of Sodom. That's quite a rebuff. They certainly seem like fighting words. I think we could expect that the king of Sodom was offended. But we'll get to this later. We know what's going to happen to the king of Sodom, don't we? At least many of us do. And if not, you've got to come back and hear it. These are righteous words. Abram not only served the king of Sodom by bringing back his people and possessions, but he served him by speaking the truth and giving him a chance to turn from his wicked way. I want to ask John to come up in the band, and we're going to prepare now to take communion, come to the Lord's table together and to sing in closing. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table, which is the best way to respond to God's word. Such a glorious way to be reminded of what our Savior has done for us, what he's purchased for us. Now, if you're a baptized believer in good standing with your church, even if, even if you're not a member of Crossway, but if you're in good standing with your church, you're a baptized believer, please join us here at the Lord's table. Now, if you're not yet trusting in Christ, you haven't been baptized in his name, don't wait any longer. Turn to Jesus Christ and turn from sin. What does the Lord need to say to you? You know he's real. He's calling to you and offering salvation today in the name of Jesus, the son who died for sinners. You can be forgiven today. Come and pray with us. We'll, at the end of the meeting, come and pray with us. We'll pray with you and you'll know Christ Jesus and you'll know the grace of God. You'll know the mercy of God. You'll be forgiven from sin. You'll be baptized. You'll come and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll join us forever at the Lord's Supper. God is continually bringing the dead back to life in Jesus Christ. This is a good part of the call to us today. It's the main idea. It's what I would really like to get across. I think God's word is pressing on us today. Be aggressively righteous because God most high is both sovereign 
and Savior. Both sovereign and Savior. Be unashamed in this world. Be aggressively righteous. Do not be ashamed to lift up the name of Jesus, to say that you follow him, to live in such a manner that points to him. Draw the lines where they need to be drawn. Patriarchs, take your stand in this world. Be aggressively righteous. Look at how aggressive Abram was. Fulfilling his relational responsibilities and righteousness and worshiping God in the victory that he received and then rebuffing the king of Sodom, being discerning, having discretion in this world. It's a glorious example. But there's more than that. There's more than that here, more than example. We've seen that Melchizedek is a type of Christ as a high priest. But we see another type here. Abram also prefigures the Lord. Think of this. Lot is flirting with sin, living on the edges of Sodom. At some point, he moves into the city, probably has his herds outside the city. He owns land out there, but he's living in the city. He has the best of both worlds. He's got, the, he's got all the delights of urban living, and yet he's got wealth, and he's living there, so he's flirting with sin. And, he, and, and by doing that, he puts himself in a vulnerable position. He's kidnapped by the enemy. The kings of the east come and take him away with the king of Sodom and all his goods and people. Abram knows he doesn't belong there. Lot belongs with him, whether Lot knows it or not. Abram immediately pursues with no thought to his own security. He defeats his enemy, sends them running away. It's a complete, utter destruction, defeat of these kings of the east. Frees Lot, brings Lot home with all the people and possessions. Hasn't our Lord Jesus done that for us? Think of how aggressively our Lord pursued us before we belonged to him. Think of what he had to do. Think of the cross as not some passive thing that simply happened to our Lord but as a warrior going to battle to pursue you and I from the hands of the enemy who had taken us captive and would have sold us into slavery forever. But instead the Lord pursues and tracks down his enemy, comes up from behind and ambushes him, sends him scrambling and defeats him entirely and rescues us from his hand and brings us back to a place, a table of refreshment. All through his own great sacrifice, completely at his own risk. And now invites us to the table. Today as we come to the Lord's table, to the bread, to the wine, this is a fitting celebration. And let this be a celebration of our Lord's salvation, a remembrance and a joining in with and a celebration of our Lord who went out and saved us and has now brought us to the King's Valley and to his table. Would you stand with me please?
For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.